Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Watchdogs. Hello and welcome to episode number 19 of the North American Waterfowler. And today I've got Aiden with me. You may know him as Golden Boy if you watch the Freelance Duck Hunting videos. If you don't watch the videos, you probably don't know him at all. <laughs> but you will so, soon. But you will soon. So Aiden, I'm going to give Aiden uh, a little background on Aiden. And then we're going to go right into this, um, probably starting with the question of the week, which I have a very special question of the week or comment of the week, I mean, prepared for Aiden. So Aiden right now is a habitat specialist at one of the um, state waterfowl um, areas. Um, what do they call them? What, the waterfowl, I don't call them waterfowl areas. I'm blanking on them. Wildlife areas. Thank you. Wildlife areas. <laughs> And so he has been a very close friend of mine for about the last seven years. And we've hunted together many, many, many times. Um, he's quite a bit younger than me. I met him just as he was kind of getting out of high school. And I've been there with him along his journey of selecting his jobs and growing as a hunter and, and, and all of that. So I thought it would be really fun to have him on. We can talk about some history of his hunting how he got from career choice A to career choice C and all sorts of all sorts of different fun stuff. So what's going on tonight, Aiden? Well, I've just been looking forward to this and then Yeah. <laughs> so you actually work you you work for Pheasants Forever, right? Yes, I technically I work for Pheasants Forever and it's a partnership with the state of Kansas. And so they have these positions uh, that would require legislation 
um, but Pheasants Forever stepped in. And um, there's even some new ones, positions coming up at Miranda Scene, Milford, and Byron Walker are all getting habitat specialist positions. And I think an area just applies for it through Pheasants Forever. And and then it's a, a partnership with them. So we uh, manipulate habitat, um, working under the management, the manager, or, or both manager and assistant managers on the wildlife areas. And then um, for the state of Kansas, it's uh, really the best stepping stone um, position to get into wildlife management. Right, right. And so uh, you graduated with your four-year biologist degree last year, correct? Correct. Yeah, I graduated last year from K-State with my wildlife biology degree, and that was my fourth school. So I got it figured out eventually what I wanted to do, and now I'm really happy with what I'm doing, and I'm I'm glad that I made all those changes. Early. Yeah, and I actually would, if you don't mind, um, at some point in this podcast, I'd like to just kind of walk through that and talk about kind of just your story as you went through all of that and what your thoughts were. Um, I know I was, we were friends at the time. And so I got to, you always kind of told me what was going on, but I want to go through all of that and just kind of go through your journey from the time that I met you to where you are now. So we can, we can go through a lot of that. And also I want to talk about um, your favorite, most memorable hunt that you and I were on together and a myriad of other different things. But before we get into that, sure. I want to start with the comment of the week, which when I have guests on here, if there are people that are on my videos, freelance duck hunting on YouTube, I typically try to find comments either on a hunt that they were on or specifically about them. So uh, this hunt comes from a teal hunt that Aiden went on early this past year. And I posted this video on my channel. Aiden actually has his own channel. It's called Cherry Creek Outdoors. But he was originally posting or a huge part of my channel. He did filming when we were together. And then he made his own channel. And this past year, he decided to put some of his videos on freelance duck hunting. And so this one was a teal hunt. And this teal hunt was very difficult to film because it was dark and lightning was ever. You remember that lightning teal hunt, Aiden? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Can you give a quick a quick description of this hunt? Sure. Well, um, basically, there's a, quite a few guys in this marsh, and it got really stormy and pouring pouring rain, and the most lightning I've ever been outside for. And we were the only ones left in this marsh. By <laughs> everybody else had left by shooting time, I think, and we stuck it out. <laughs> we killed some teal. <laughs> well, that leads us directly into the comment of the week. <laughs> All right, here we go. Comment of the week. It's time for the comment of the week. <laughs> User says, with age comes wisdom. We have all done stupid shit. Hopefully, sir, you make it to the age where you think twice about going hunting in that kind of weather. With a new hunter as well. Love your videos, but this one was not fun to watch. Mm. Well, it was fun to be out there for me, and it was fun to make. <laughs> so you can think whatever you want, but I 100% disagree at this point in my life. Now, 20 years from now, maybe I'll disagree with you, but it's like, who 
who can be out there when the weather's that crappy? Like, there's very few opportunities just in the year when the weather is that crappy. And I got to be out teal hunting, shooting teal in that weather with the ground shaking. So, I mean, I, if I could go back, I would do it again 10 out of 10 times right now. All right, I'm, I'm going to throw some names out there and you tell me, would they have stayed and hunted with you or would they have demanded to leave? Are you, are you ready? Your dad. Oh, he gone. Uh, your boss. <laughs> mm, probably back at the truck. Uh, Jake from Chasing Green. Oh, 100% at the truck. what about me what would i have done oh yeah you would have been with me for sure (laughs) what about fumbles we would have convinced him to stay (laughs) (laughs) like maybe it's just up to him he would have left but if we were out there he's coming with us (laughs) 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 we would guilt him i would say that you took some abuse in the in the comment section of that one yeah, a little bit, but you know, I just don't really care. Also, it's funny. <laughs> Honestly, I did not even expect that. Like, I read these comments and I was just like, we're on different wavelengths. Like, are you even a duck hunter? Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone else in the marsh felt the same way. <laughs> Apparently, because they all left. <laughs> But two people in my group had a great time, and, and that guy, that it was his first hunt, and he was hooked. He took right. it hook and sinker after that. So I wonder what the statistical probability of getting struck by lightning in that situation was. I bet you it was well, crazy low. That's my guess. My only worry was, like, if it does hit the pool, how far would it travel? Yeah. Because, I mean, it dissipates fairly quickly, I think. Like, it's not like a metal wire. Like, if you're touching a fence and the fence gets struck, that metal is really conductive and it would travel. But there's so much vegetation and stuff in the water. My thought is, like, even if it hits on the other side of the marsh or relatively close, I'm probably still going to be okay. But, I yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. I would think it's still pretty low, but it's definitely going to be higher than if you're sitting at home. Right. So I'm trying to look here. What are the odds of getting struck by lightning? But that doesn't, it's like, I need, what's the odds of getting struck by lightning standing in the water in a storm? But just, <laughs> 90% of people that actually get struck by lightning survive, which I, I'm just reading that. About 40 million mm-hmm. lightning strikes hit the ground each year, but the odds of being struck by lightning in a given year are less than one in a million. Certainly years were more than one in a million though. I mean, because it's like, okay, the average person's chances get is one in a million, which is actually pretty crazy. Cause if you think of like, you know, I live in the Casey metropolitan area. It's like 2.5 million people. That's like two people a year in that area getting struck by lightning. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think how high that, like going into the situation in the future, Knowing if I know the probability is one in a million, I'm going to get struck. I would never, even when I'm 80, I think, change my decision to go in. Right. Yeah. If I knew the probability was more like, hmm, like greater than like 5%, 
then maybe I would change my mind. So you do it in a 4% chance? I still feel like maybe not 10 out of 10 times, but I would push my luck. You know, if I it was one in a hundred, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. Really? A hundred. I'm trying to think, think what that number would be. I know yeah. I would do it in one in a hundred thousand for sure. One in 50,000, one in 10,000. I think yeah. even if it was one in a thousand, gosh, it's just such a, I, I don't know. It's like, I don't know if I'd do it in one in a thousand. Yeah. But like, I know I'm, I definitely, go ahead. For sure. One in a hundred thousand, like no doubt. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, maybe, okay. Maybe not 5%. That is, that's pretty high, I guess. Yeah. Five, five and a hundred, but shoot, even 1%. <laughs> like knowing that going in, cause it's like, we're standing in the parking lot and you know, it's about to get bad and we're still walking in. I guess you're not really thinking about like, what are the odds? Yeah. But see, but I base so many of my decision by uh, thinking through the odds thing. But typically, it's like I do a risk reward assessment too. It's like, what's the risk? What's the reward? One in a hundred thousand, I get my Saturdays to hunt teal. I'm going. One in ten thousand, I get my Saturdays. It's like, what's the risk versus the reward? I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm going. Yeah. So, and I guarantee you that those odds were way better than better for not getting struck than one in a hundred thousand. I bet you anything they were, but so would you have gone like, Oh, look, for sure. Okay. I thought, yeah. I mean, I thought so. Like I was almost a hundred percent certain that you right, would have yeah. gone. Yeah. I would have totally gone. No doubt. No doubt. But you know, I mean, anyone who does have um, friends or relatives that have been struck by lightning. We don't take that lightly. We understand the risks and everything. It's just a risk analysis. And I yeah. can't imagine that that if I, if, if I, if the numbers were, I'm sure the numbers were that if the scientists were like, well, here's your chance. I'd be like, okay, let's go. You know, so. Well, I guess, you know, when we were out there, there was three of us, we all believe in Jesus and we all know where we're going, or at least we think we know where we're going because of our relationship with God. Um, and I guess that kind of plays a factor in it to it because the reality is like, he's not going to take you away until it's your time to go. That doesn't warrant us to do stupid stuff all the time. Like I don't know, some people would say hunting and lightning stupid, but to me, that's not stupid. That's really fun. But, <laughs> right. Like I'm not going to drive blindly down the highway going a hundred miles an hour. <laughs> Cause that's yeah. dumb. But the reality yeah. is, is like, like a hundred bolts of lightning could be coming my way. And if it's not my time to go, I'll, I'll survive it. So. Yeah. And then you get up to heaven. God's like, well, yeah, it wasn't your time, but you were being stupid. <laughs> so I had to smite you. <laughs> <laughs> you forced my hand. <laughs> right. right. How can all those kids on YouTube see this? <laughs> all right. So anyway, that was the comment of the week. Uh, we're going to go into a quick, a second comment of the week real quick on a, on a different topic. Um, the first one I didn't have the name for because I, I forgot to write it down. But this one is Drew Clements. <clears throat> and this comes from another teal hunt from this year. This is your first hunt with your dog, Stella. It says, that's an awesome first hunt for her, meaning your dog, Stella. 
She'll figure out watching them fall in no time. Just some hand signal work, and she's going to be a great dog. Yeah. Response to that. I mean, I was, I was really happy. Um, I guess dog comments always taken with a grain of salt. Like if there's like critique in there, um, but I really enjoyed those comments. What was the last part of that comment? Like the last few uh, words of it. It said, um, "Oh, because in that well, in that in that hunt, she wasn't marking that well, just because it was her first hunt. Oh, and so he's like just some hand signal work, and she's gonna be a great dog, just because oh, yeah. she wasn't seeing them fall because it was her first hunt, which dogs right. don't see them. So there was no criticism in that one. He was just oh yeah. Just tell us about because Stella and her first year, and just your assessment of give a little background of her and and your assessment of her first year." Sure. I'm really happy with how she's done. And for one, I think it's made me a stronger, more responsible person because um, I trained her from eight weeks from we pretty much trained almost every day until like eight or nine, seven or eight months old. So there's a lot of responsibility in that. And there's a, a lot of work. And it was a huge reward. <clears throat> like if I can hunt, but I can't take her, I know I'm just not going to enjoy it as much. So I get mm -hmm. a huge amount of satisfaction from her retrieving birds and bringing them to me. And so it's, I'm super thankful that I have her and she's just a great dog. I mean, yeah, she loves me and she loves everybody else. She drives me nuts in a few ways and, but it's given me patience in areas that I probably need patience in. So uh, I use the retriever trainer program and I can't imagine. I, I don't think I ever would have been successful without using something like that. Cause it's a step-by-step -step tool mm -hmm. and then having you to bounce things off of, which that was a huge help too. Like, I don't know. I just still wouldn't have done as good. Cause I was able to bounce stuff off you pretty frequently. Yeah. When you're training a dog, an amateur level trainer, like both of us are, because I mean, I've trained now Georgie to where, I mean, she's a little machine, but if I, if I were get a new dog today and train, I'm still going to be asking people questions. I mean, sure. we're, until you get to that point where, you, you know, you've trained so many dogs an amateur or you're a pro where you just got it all. It's like having, people to bounce things off of and ask questions to um, is just so, so very vital. And I, I thought what you mentioned the patience thing, cause you went to a time where you were struggling, not losing your cool with her in training. And I know we talked about that and, mm -hmm. and cause I think you had to back up and slow down give her more success. And, and um, yeah, that was yeah. probably a great process for you in general in your whole, just for your life. Oh yeah, of course. Um, like, you know, hunting with you and Georgie, you know, I got to experience, like, what a great dog. Having a great dog hunting was like. And so I was coming into training and essentially, like, you know, this dog that doesn't know anything. And I had standards that were way too high for her. It's okay to have high standards, but, I mean, you got to know your dog. And especially, um, she wasn't even a year old and we're training so, um, I remember there was 
you and I kind of had a, a come to Jesus talk on the phone. And I was, cause I was just losing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote quite a few things down from that talk and they're, they're still hanging on my fridge. And I remember um, a couple of them were like, Oh, do things she knows. And right. it's like, you know, think about it from her perspective, you know, could she like, she's also four feet closer to the ground or three feet closer to the ground than I am. So is she going to be able to see it hit the ground and right. <laughs> do things she knows always have grace for repetition, take yeah. breaks, train when you're in a good mood. And so that made a big difference. I don't remember what all of them are. I'd have to go look. Well, but. my patient, my patience for dogs has been a real growth. I mean, my first dog, I was, I didn't train her at all, but I was still really hard on her and we're at, Cause she was a mess, just a train wreck of a dog out hunting. And I would scream at her and yell at her. And I never trained. I was an idiot. And then Izzy, um, it was better, but I was still too hard on her at times where expecting her to be able to do things that I had not set her up through training to be able to do and then get mad at her when she doesn't do what I didn't properly train her to do. You know, right. It's just yeah. finally been Georgie now that I've got really, I mean, there's been a couple of times I've gotten mad at. Because you can get mad at a dog. It's okay. And you can lay into a dog. It's okay. It just yeah. has to be at the right time, at the right moments. You know, you don't take a dog that you've never taught to be steady and then scream and yell and hit them when they're not steady when you're hunting. It's a, that's as an example. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a thing. And I will say you started Stella earlier than what I thought you should. Um, but it worked out great. I mean, it worked out great. In hindsight. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy I did. I think it helped most of, I don't know, her first, I guess her first like four or five hunts was just her and I. Right. And it's teal season. You know, everything is pretty dang close. And, you know, if I remember like by hunt three, I think, you know, she had three or four good marks out of the six and it's just, I was happy with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she just progressed from there. And then, then, uh, I think after that, um, it was hunting with dad. I think we had one or two hunts where somebody else was shooting and that was a new thing. And, right. and she's, I mean, she breaks every once in a while, but she always stops when I call her like Stella, no, she always comes back and, uh, but she's steady the vast majority of the time, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like greater than 90% of the time. Yeah. I, say, I don't I know what percent make, that is, but make sure that you stick on that. Um, I know Georgie, I did not think that Georgie broke a single time this year. And I was watching one of my videos from this year and she broke twice. And I was like, Oh, wow. really? I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Yeah. She broke twice in the video and I was like, Oh wow. Or maybe it was from last year. Anyway, I was like, I did not remember that. I, I would have told someone Georgie was hundred percent steady. What, what other flaws <laughs> have I forgotten that she's done? <laughs> she's just so perfect. <laughs> uh, I, I need the mistake I made this year with Georgie is I, I need, when you've got a dog and you want to maintain it at the highest level, you need to view the hunt the same as you view a training session. It's like, if I'm not going to let her get away with this in training, I shouldn't let her get away with this in the hunt. 
and I got really sloppy with her discipline um, and everything. And she just, man, her, some of the habits that, that she was starting to develop are really, really poor. And now after season, she's, I mean, I've firmed up everything and man, her discipline right now is just gold. I mean, just gold out training is like her heels perfect or she, she'll sit and stay and I can walk clear around a pond and the other dogs can be retrieving and she'll stay there. And it's like, I've got to make sure and focus on that when I hunt mm. because that stuff's annoying when you're hunting and they don't have the, the same behavior as they do when you're training. And there's only one person to blame for that. It's not the dog. Right. So, and we talked about that a little bit earlier with Stella that, you know, she was breaking or st uh, during one of the snow goose hunts and yeah. And just like, she can't go get it. But I let Georgie do that. I've had Georgie creep like five feet ahead. And then I call her back to me and I send her. It's like, no, 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 no. Cause I feel sorry for her. It's like, Oh, it's been a slow day. I wanted to retrieve. No, no, no. Yeah. She comes back. She doesn't retrieve. And I've done that. Like just, Oh, poor little Georgie. You know, it's like, no, no, she screwed up. She comes back. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> now that I have a dog, I'm like, I, I don't want to go get it. <laughs> right. I want her to go get it. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, dang. I'm terrible at that. There's probably only been like, I think there's been two times this year where uh, she has broke. She stops and comes back and then I go get it. And so mm. I'm not good at that, but cause I just want her to retrieve so bad too. <laughs> I know. Georgie's fourth hunt, she was over a year old, like a year and a quarter. And her fourth hunt, she was not steady two or three times. Her fifth hunt, she was like not steady the entire hunt. And we had to come yeah. to Jesus on that fifth one where she watched me retrieve almost every single bird. And yeah. uh, after that, after she watched me retrieve all those birds, after the hunt, I threw birds for her in the water, made her went, you know, made her be steady and go get them and that was that was the end of it. I won the battle that day. The battle was won. And there's she hasn't been perfect, but like from that moment forward, she was a steady dog. It's like had I not been on my game that day and not done that, who knows how long it would have taken me maybe to to get her fully steady. Mm, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, I think I one thing I did really well with Stella is the obedience like you were talking yes. about. Yes, you did. Um, thanks. Very, very. She, she's her base disciplines tighter than Georgie's. And it was very much tighter than Georgie's this season. And I didn't like it. <laughs> so it was like, you know, I'm a little, I must, I must have a soft heart and you and a uh, little too much. And it, it creeps and I've got to keep knocking it down. Cause it creeps up on me and having mm. a soft heart like that leads to, just a little bit sloppy discipline, you know? Yeah. You're a kind of on that, the soft heart side. And then I'm more on like the other side. It's like, Oh, I, I said, sit. And like, I mean that for like, until I say that it's okay. It may be 45 minutes, but right. you shouldn't sit there. <laughs> but right. I, I've also like come more to the middle as I've trained more. And I think, you know, it's like, uh, not that I have kids, but it's like your first kid, you know, you're like, this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. And then by like mm. kid three, you're like, ah, it's okay, whatever. <laughs> right. And I feel like that's kind of like with Stella, as she's gotten older, 
um, for one, I haven't had to be on her as much just cause she is pretty obedient. But then also I'm like, mm-hmm. I have more grace for her now than I used to, or more, fle- more flexibility, whatever you want to call it. Right. I've got Georgie in check now. I'll tell you everything, every yeah. problem has been solved and I'm going to hold it. I, and she wasn't bad. It's not like we're talking, the stuff we're talking about is she wasn't a misbehaved dog. It's just like you said, if you say sit, you want to be for 45 minutes, however long or whatever. And I let her get a little sloppy jumping out of boats and stuff like that. And jumping out of the truck, just little things that, but make a big difference. It's like, if you, if you get to a parking lot and you get out of your truck and they'll say that you're, there's other hunters preparing your dog jumps out of the truck behind you. Now your dog's running off in the dark, jumping on other people and Georgie doesn't have that problem, but I'm saying not being tight on these little discipline things cause stresses on the hunt. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why it just makes a difference. Cause overall, if they're doing a bunch of little things during the day, it just is a little stressful. It's just like, it, it's a deterrent to your enjoyment, that bad dog behavior. Right. Yeah. And it could something as simple as that, that could even be a, a life or death thing for that the dog right. you know because they don't they're not perceiving the outside world and that's why when i started training stella why i wanted to be so strict on that basic obedience was because it's like i don't want a dog that you know i know there's a car coming and i can get out of the truck but i, I don't want a dog that's just jumping out of the truck every time the doors open right. because yeah. they could just jump out and run straight in the car and Every time the front door opens, like she knows she can't leave the house unless I say it's okay. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, absolutely. And, um, hopefully Aiden's going to jump into the hunt test game with me at some point this year. Um, yeah. and I do want, I do want to, I need to last episode, I did all about HRC hunt test and I meant to do this retraction at the beginning of the episode, but I want to do it right here. I made a couple mistakes and things I said last episode about HRC. I said that you need to pass the grand. I said you need four passes and you only need two. Four passes is for the Hall of Fame. And I also said your dog has to be um, steady and started. But I was corrected in that is you actually, if you need to, you can hold your dog's collar and started and have someone else shoot the gun for you and then let go of the dog. I didn't do it that way. I had Georgie be steady and I shot the gun. But anyway, I said those two things last episode and those were incorrect. So I wanted to go back and correct those. Um, anyway, got that done. I do want to say one, one more, one more thing I want to say before we move on to the next subject. You mentioned about like dog safety with the, with their discipline and everything. And I had a situation this year and I don't know if I told you about this or not. I might have, um, I was with two other guys and we were on the lake in the big boat, super windy. We came back to the boat ramp. I jumped out, Georgie jumped out and I looked up the boat ramp and there was this little car there. It was not a, not a hunter. It's just some, I don't know scraggly looking 50 year old guy and he had a pit bull and his pit bull. It was, I'd say it was probably 50 to seven, probably 70 yards from us. It was about the distance. And I think either the pit bull was in the sky car and jumped out or I don't, but the, the pit bull was trying, decided it was going to come down. And I assume is a pit bull. I assume it was going to attack Georgie was my thoughts. And this guy was trying to restrain this pit bull. And to the point where the guy was laying on the ground, like bear hugging this pit bull, 
because this pit bull was trying to get away from him to get to Georgie. And I'm like, I, I was freaking out because I've watched some videos of like pit bulls attacking dogs and stuff. And it's like, even as a full grown man, getting a pit bull off of a dog like Georgie, I don't know if you can get it done or not. I mean, I go to eye gouge. I don't know, but I got Georgie. I, I killed her back up in the boat and I was about ready to like, I was going to push the boat out, you know, like just cause my friend and two friends in there, I was going to just push the boat out. So where it was in deep, deeper water and everything, but I was so pissed off at this guy. He was able to restrain this pit bull, got it back in his car and he just took off. I was so, so pissed, but had Georgie jumped out of the boat, take up running wild off to that guy with that pit bull. Who knows? Who knows? The, the yeah. guy didn't think he was around. The pit bull could have killed her or maimed her. Yeah, exactly. But it was a terrifying exactly. experience. I was just thinking about this pit bull ripping into my sweet little 52 pound girl. Yeah. You know, and oh, I, I was going to give that guy an earful. That's why you don't get pit bulls, man. For all you pit bull people, I'm sorry. Pit yeah, bulls I'm not even sorry. That's just down. <laughs> like, if something like that was coming to attack Stella, like, honestly, I think if I was, I would probably end that dog's life. Like, if need be. If, yeah. Because well, I've always thought with their lock jaw, I would just go thumb straight to eye socket. Mm. Just gouge yeah. its eye straight into its brain. I don't know. I mean, the pit bull lovers are always like, oh, they're all so sweet. They have great dispositions. Okay, that every single breed is going to have some squirrely dogs that are mean and aggressive. If there's a mean and aggressive lab, it's not killing anybody. It's not killing other dogs. I'm. I know that actually, my parents, my parents' dog did get killed by a lab. I'm one of their parents. <laughs> it was a terrible story. Ripped it, ripped its oh, guts no. out right in front of the dog sitter. But and you know what I'm saying? Oh, like pit bulls have lethal weapons. Yeah, this pit bull, real, real quick, or not pit bull, sidetrack. So this, now I'm going to counter my statement with giving you a story <laughs> of this happening. And my parents, <laughs> let me go to the comment. They're actually watching. I, I'm, I'm ninety percent, ninety percent certain that this was a pit bull. They, they were out of town and they had a dog sitter watching their dogs and this lab came from across the street they had this little some kind of little fluffy dog and this dog ripped into it and just tore its guts out and killed it boom dang that's terrible that's terrible like a lab did that you said i think i'm pretty sure it was a lab i'm pretty hmm. sure I'll have to ask my parents again, but, but anyway, as far as, you know, pit bulls, like they have weapons that you can pretty much, yeah, my mom says, yes, it was a lab. You can pretty much, if a lab attacks Stella or Georgie, you can handle it as an adult male for the most part, even a dog like chief or you can handle that. But pit bull has those jaws. It's just lethal. You can't, it's just no go. What would the difference be between like <laughs> lab jaws and pit bull jaws? Well, it's just the muscle. I mean, you see how their heads are. So mm. I, I watched a video where this lab was locked on. It might have been a reenactment. Or no, I'm sorry. This pit bull was locked onto something. They could not pry its jaws apart with a crowbar. They The muscles that they have in their jaws, when they clamp down, you cannot, you cannot, we don't have the strength as men to pull that jaw apart. Mm. Just based on how 
they are created with their muscles and their jaws and everything. Whereas a lab, you can pry their mouth open. Yeah. And so literally they have deadly weapons attached to their, to their skull with those jaws. Yeah. Okay. So let's man that roundabout way that way long ways to get through that, but I, I, it's fun conversation. So I'm fine with letting the podcast go wherever it goes. Um, so why don't you tell, um, how we, how we met? You want to tell that? Yeah, for sure. Hold on one second. Stella Kennel. Yeah. So let's see, we met at a place I had been to one time, but my plan was to kayak, um, about a mile, a little over a mile into this wetland, which I had never been to this area I was going to go to. I'd just been in the parking lot and seen it. Um, and this was very early in my duck hunting career. I was very green, didn't know a whole lot. Um, 2016. Yeah. So this was like first eight, sometime in the top first eight hunts of my life. How old were you at that time? 18. Yes. Let's see. Yeah, I was eighteen at the time. I just Senior graduated year of high school or freshman year of co- freshman year of college. Freshman year of college. Okay. Yes, I was running cross country at Johnson County at the time, and I was just like duck hunting when I had time because uh, Dad duck hunted when he was my age, and I really wanted to figure that out and get into it. This so your anyway, season duck hunting or your first season duck hunting? First season. First season. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You took me under your wing on my, I met you my first season. Yeah. But we didn't really start hunting a lot together till the next year. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. Anyway, um, I was about to launch my kayak and I think it was like four fifteen or something. It was early in the morning and, I, um, these guys pulled up to me and I was trying to get my boat. So I didn't have to talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, Hey, where are you going? And I said, told them where I was going. They're like, I think Elliot asked if we could hunt together. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't know anything about anything. And I started kayaking, not even expecting them to like keep their word and like, go where I was going. I figured they'd just go do their own thing. But I started kayaking and they caught up to me and just kind of hit it off and they forced Jeff Boyardee down my throat and (laughs) I got sick and and boom. That's how you make friends. Isn't it great we've got a video of that day? Yeah. It really is great great. about videoing, which I think that you ought to be more, do more videos even if you don't post them. Because So like having those things, having those, I was thinking today about like, if I didn't, if I couldn't film and didn't do YouTube anymore, I would still film because it's just like, I can go back and I can watch that whole day that in fact, I can go back and literally watch every single hunt you and I have been on together. Yeah. Screw YouTube, screw anything, screw anything. It's like that, just (laughs) having that ability, right? Yes. And that is awesome because. Also, because I'm a terrible storyteller and you just forget things. Like when I go back and watch a move, a video 
that you've taken from our hunt, it's like, mm-hmm. I forgot that happened. Right. And these, all these little details and, and then it kind of comes back and you just get flooded with these memories that you wouldn't have other yeah. than from the video. So that's really nice. Yeah. Now I will say, and with that though, your memories of those hunts are not, it's, it's weird because so your memories of those hunts become the video, which I'm hmm. not sure that that's always a positive thing. Yeah. So my memory of hunts before I started filming are authentic the way memory should be held. So, but you lose a lot of it, but now my videos in my mind's eye, I literally see things from the video, not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is a different type of memory style, I guess. Yeah, it is different because I think the way memory functions, I was listening to Jordan Peterson talk about this and he had talked about like, you can almost change the way you view things in your memory, like based on your current experience. So like, I think that relates to what you're talking about. Like you have these memories, but you go back and watch these videos and then that kind of changes maybe how you look, uh, Mm -hmm. how you view, you know, those memories. But I think it's a good trade off because if I put together a top five, top 10 list of my all time hunts, um, I think number one on there, I'm not going to say where it was, um, but you know of it. And my, it was my dad and I, and my mm-hmm. memories of that hunt are only about two or three little tiny snippets that I even remember. I remember mm-hmm. my dad went off the pee. I shot a double. I remember some frustrations I had at the beginning of the hunt and that's like it. That's it. Mm-hmm. But I know that was one of my favorite hunts of my entire life, but I just don't hardly have any visual memories that I can pull on from that. That's why I started filming because I was telling my dad, I was like, I'm just not remembering. I would go back and look at my spreadsheet. I'm like, I'm not, I don't have enough memories of these hunts. I don't have enough memories. I need to start doing a video log just so I could hold memories. That was the whole, that was the whole point. Yeah. I was going through freelance hunt stats before this started. And I've had hunts from even a couple of years ago, like, I read the title and I'm like, oh man, I just, I don't even remember that from the title of, of my hunt stat log. And I should yeah. be able to remember that, but yeah. Well, very soon, like very, very soon. Now you'll be able to upload a image for each hunt at freelance hunt stats. So you'll log your hunt. You can upload the image. So it shows it right there and you can add your dog a picture of your dog and keep your dog retrieves as well. That's already done. That's in test phase right now, the dog thing. So you'll create dog, you put Stella, you drop in a little picture of her and then it'll have how many retrieves if you want to, if you choose to, which I don't do that with Georgie. I don't, it, I don't, it's, for some reason, it's not that all that valuable to me. Like my dog has, cause I can kind of approximate how many retrieves she has. I don't need like the exact number. Um, I right. do, but some guys love that and they're big time into it, but that will be there. That'll be a part of it starting next year. That'd be cool. Do you track Stella's retrieves? No, I would be interested in that number. Um, but I don't know if I would start now that I'm a season in. 
Were you telling a story and I interrupted you with that whole dog thing? I hope I didn't hijack what you were saying. I thought you were coming to a close point. Hmm. I don't remember. I have to go back and watch probably, the video. <laughs> I probably did. Probably just totally for a little guy. So yeah, the, after after Aiden and I hunted that day, um, we went on um, another hunt. We went on a couple more hunts that year, and both of them were pretty epic. We went on the hunt with Dan in Nevin's Cove, where we had such a good good day. Um, mm-hmm. And I tried to feed you raw duck, and then you did feed the, me raw duck. I, did, I didn't try to. <laughs> I did it. Well, yeah. you know, I tried, and then you guys sent it back to me. And I was being all bitchy oh, about it. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not a restaurant. Well, you may not be a restaurant, pal, but we would like them to be done. We would like them to be edible, sir. Yeah. <laughs> You're back there with a fire and and meat on the sticks, Elliot. You know, it would be nice to be able to actually consume this. <laughs> yeah. But the funny thing is, since then, I have eaten duck that's been easily that raw. And I didn't even <laughs> complain about it. I was getting you ready <laughs> for tough times. Yeah. <laughs> But that was a sweet hunt. Then we went on the river goose hunt where we about one of the physically most demanding hunts of our lives on that. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know what my point was. Uh, anyway, so that's how we met. That's how we started hunting together. Um, and then the next year, which is 2017, it's like pretty much it became almost implied hunting, like on the like where we hunt this weekend kind of thing. And that's why I, I do miss you, that. Yeah, me too. Oh, me too. Jeez. Yeah, I'm going to be doing lots of solo stuff over the next few years, I think. Um, anyway, which is fine. But yeah, the, that year, that um, season three FDH 2017 is probably, if I could just say my favorite year of duck hunting ever, it might be that year. Mm. I mean, we had so much success that year. I mean, and coming off a really, really bad two years in a row, it's like, we had so much success that year, just hunt after hunt after hunt. Yeah. When I think back over my duck hunting career, that's probably like, there's like sections of memory and there's times like you, me and Dan, like that's top tier hunts. Like in my mind right. is when, you know, we were just always, we always hunted together every weekend. Like you said, it was applied yep. and, that's just we're just really good times. Yeah, Fumbles missed out on some of that because that's the year he had that stint put in his heart. My dad. Um, that's that's the year that he had his stint. We had that comeback video of his. Um, yeah, but he had the stints put in. But yeah, that that was a really really fun year, for sure. So um, I'd like for you to go through. Um, let's jump into your career path. So that was shortly after we met. Uh, you were a uh, freshman at Johnson County College, and where did where did you go from there? Yeah, I was freshman running cross country at Johnson County, and then I started duck hunting. And I was like, "There's no way I'm running cross country next season. I'm duck hunting." <laughs> <laughs> and I I transferred from Johnson County to Kansas City, Kansas uh, Community College because it was closer to where I lived. And then, um, I graduated from there with just a two year degree. Um, and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My family had pushed me towards engineering. Um, so I went to university of Missouri, Kansas city for mechanical engineering. 
and I was there a whole five days and I dropped out, which was a tough decision at the time. So you only were in engineering for five days. So you went to, yes. Okay. Right, right, right. Go ahead. Yeah. I just, at the, at that time, I realized like the math courses I'd taken in community college did not prepare me for the level I needed to be at, at a four year college. And so I was going to have to like backtrack a year of school. So not graduating for four years total um, after high school. And that was a big deal for me because I didn't want to be in school for five years total. Um, so I was trying to figure out jobs that I could do with limited schooling. Um, well, so also, let, to, me, let me stop you for a second because I remember, yeah. I don't know if you remember this or not, because we talked about this decision a lot before you mm-hmm. made it. And one thing that you were freaking out about was li- life in a cubicle because you mm-hmm. are a kind of person, like I'm a good couch sitter. You are not. You're, like, you you're gotta right. be up, gotta be doing stuff. And I know like the whole cubicle life, because we talked about it, like, well, maybe you could just bust your butt and try to retire early. <laughs> but like, like I cannot be in a cubicle. I cannot be in a cubicle. Yes, that's a good point. I remember actually one time, I don't remember. I'm sure we were scouting or duck hunting, but I remember we had talked about that driving in your truck somewhere. And that was a, a big deal. It's like, I just, I don't know if, I don't think I want to sit at a desk and be inside. Right. And we had talked about, well, you know, I will make a lot of money. Maybe I can retire and by 40 or 40, you know, mid forties, 45. Um, but what I'm doing now, I love. So I'm glad I changed path. So but anyway, you go? We, after, after engineering, what was your next step? I went to a different community college and um, I did a two year it took me three semesters of wind energy, wind energy and solar energy program. And I worked in the field one summer. Um, and I did not enjoy it. I did internal blade inspections. Um, Which on the, what exactly? Yeah, it was on the wind turbines, the ones that are 300 feet tall. And these blades were... I'm trying to remember 67 meter blades, I think. And I would crawl. So you're, you're in the tower, you climb up the tower and then there's a humongous bearing. There's a hub, which each blade is attached to. And you fix the blade um, parallel to the ground um, and you lock it in. And then um, you, get into the blade from inside the hub, which at the root, these blades were probably like eight feet tall. So like the first couple of yards, you're walking, inspecting it for cracks and delamination um, on the inside. And then, um, you know, it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. By the time you're at the 40 meter mark, which is as far as we had to inspect, um, like I couldn't turn my head with my helmet on. So it's very tight. So you're just crawling space. on your belly, just crawling. Yeah. By the time you get to like 36, 37 meters, like you are on 
the floor of this blade and you're pushing yourself like with your boots and knees and hands. So it's very, very tight. And didn't you do some of that at night in the dark? Yeah, I worked in Harlingen, Texas for four weeks and we worked from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. ish. And it was still hot. Like (laughs) starting out, sometimes we get started more at 8 p.m. and it would still be like 120, 130 degrees inside those blades. And it was just miserable. So you just sweat. And like, I hate the heat. Oh, yeah. You're sweating. There's fiberglass, you know, because the blades are made out of fiberglass um, in your clothes. And it's just miserable. You have no friends (laughs) because you work at night and you're in Hollingen, Texas. And you're like, I'm only going to be here for four weeks. So I'm not, you're, it's hard to make for one long-term relationships at those places. And then it's also hard to keep your current relationships that matter to you because you're not there. So it was just not for me. And I'm glad that I got out of that. So how long, so you worked that for one summer and you're like, uh, engineer, uh, no, uh, wind tech, uh, maybe, uh, no. <laughs> and I remember <laughs> we had talked about like, at some point you're going to have to like commit to something. You yeah, can't yeah. just keep right. bouncing back and forth. Yeah. And, uh, in my life, that's kind of been like, um, something I've had to battle is like, committing to stuff like um other than duck hunting and jesus <laughs> yeah that's been pretty easy for me <laughs> right right <laughs> but um it's like you know i could have committed to engineering but i chose not to and i could work in wind i've got friends that work in the industry and and some of them really like it hold on one second okay stella kennel And I could have committed to those things, but I didn't. And, and so I remember having a conversation with you about commitment and kind of having a history in my life of starting something and then not finishing it. Um, and that kind of scared me at the time. It was like, this, whatever I do next, it's going to have to be my last thing. <laughs> <laughs> so how, what year was this now that, that you decided not to do WinTech? She did two years or one year at the first Chuko, one year at the second. So this was your like four years after high school at this point. Cause you did three semesters. Yes. Hold on. I will find this on hunt stats because I hunted. I know where I was. I think it was. While he's looking, you guys can get the same app hunt stats in the app store, log all your hunts. We got, it's changing so dramatically. It's going to be a much better product, but you guys have got to download that app. Two ninety nine a month is all that you have to pay. And it is by far the best tracker logger diary for waterfowl on the market. I have looked at them all. It is for this type of stuff. The best go get it. 
Got it yet? Hmm. I can talk about that. Hold on. Just give me one more second. Okay. I'll find it. Okay, yeah. So it was the spring of 2019. Okay. Was when I started the wind turbine school. And um, yeah, so it took me three semesters. So twenty, all of 2019, I worked that summer of 2019. Spring of 2020, I graduated. And I was actually interviewed in quite a few jobs. And I had a couple offers and I just couldn't accept them. Mm-hmm. This is when COVID started. I had moved up to Lincoln, Nebraska, and um, I was working for Parks and Rec there, just mowing. And um, my girlfriend at the time had pushed me to go back to school. And I'm really thankful she did because um, now I'm doing what I love. But anyway, I started the process. It was like mid-May, I think. And I applied to four or five schools in Kansas and got in and I applied at a wildlife area in Kansas and I got a seasonal job. Um, I also think that I talked to either maybe I think I called Rob Unruh, who's a wildlife area manager in her state and talked to him. I maybe also talked to Matt Farmer, just what I needed to do to get a job like theirs. Right. Um, and then I think I applied and got that seasonal position. Cause you had decided so I, that you wanted to go and be a wildlife manager basically. Yeah. At that point in time, specifically like, waterfowl, right? Yes. Yeah. Specifically waterfowl. And so that was May. 2020 that's basically when my life kind of did a 180 as far as a career path and i finally or i kind of had something that really motivated me right ducks and (laughs) yeah rob and i were out today just dreaming about some wetland areas and you would know exactly where i'm talking about but this area like if we could do the work that we want to do, there'd just be like water everywhere. <laughs> oh, we, uh, we will talk about We're, that off air. Yeah. And I'm just like drooling. Both of Rob and I are just like drooling and like, <laughs> just see <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like this yeah. is for me. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how many years does it take you to get your biology degree? Then to three, I two? spent two years at K state. And the funny thing is I, when I went to UMKC for engineering, one of the big reasons I dropped out was because I didn't want to go to school five years and I ended up going to school for six. So I got a four year. But you were going towards something you truly were excited about doing. Yes. So it was worth it. It took me longer to get there, but it was 100% worth it. It's funny because part of it, you know, you look back at it as lack of commitment. At the same time, it's like it took a lot of courage because I know you had to battle or not necessarily battle, but um, deal with your family's expectations. And, you know, because when your college kid or grandkid or whatever is like, well, I was going to do engineering, but now I'm not. 
you know, and sitting in that, you're worried the kid's just going to be irresponsible. Um, it, you know, there's worries in that. And that took a lot of courage. Because mm-hmm. I know when you told your dad and stuff, which he was concerned, which he should have been, I mean, as a dad, that, that nervous, but it took a lot of courage to make those jumps and to do that. So it was, Thanks. you can look at part of it as a lack of commitment. But part of it is like having the courage to be like, dude, I'm going to do this my whole life. I want to make sure that I'm doing something I'm excited about, right? Yeah, that is true. I mean, it, it did take some commitment to, or some courage, like you said, to make those decisions. And they were, I mean, they were hard decisions. And at the end of the day, um, it was tough, but they were the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And yeah, was, I didn't, um, not everybody is, you know, always going to fully support you in those types of decisions, but it worked out. So I would say I I do, I'm very thankful for my grandparents. Um, Like they helped me a lot along the way. And Mm -hmm. I know they were disappointed when I didn't continue in engineering, but they still supported me going back to school. And so that was really nice. Yeah. Um, so then you were hired as you graduated and you got hired as the habitat specialist, um, basically the assistant, what, what, what is your exact hierarchy in the job and your title habitat specialist? Yeah. My position is habitat specialist. And, um, like I said earlier, it's not for the state of Kansas. So, um, the way these wildlife areas work, it, there's managers and assistant managers and then the habitat specialists and then seasonals. And that's kind of the hierarchy um, for public lands management in our state. Um, so we don't, we can still oversee seasonals, but we don't have like the same power as a, an assistant manager or, or the same amount of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, like I do a lot of field work. My job's mostly field work. So I'm in a tractor or a UTV or a skid steer, or now we have a marsh master. So I put a lot of hours in on equipment, um, which is cool with me. Cause I'm always outside doing stuff. Um, and then we also write burn plans, which were the time of year where we're executing these plans, which is nice. We've burned over 1,400 acres in the last week. So we're really getting it done this spring, which is really nice. Is that areas right around the marsh or is that typically more fields and pasture areas? Yeah, all around the all around the marsh. We burned one of our units today was 90 acres and it was about 40 or 50 acres, um, dry wetland and then the rest mm-hmm. was upland. Nice. And one reason to do that, um, to burn the wetland was we had a lot of, uh, salt marsh aster there. And, uh, this wetland has been dry this past season. In last season, I think it had water for like two or three months. Or maybe it was dry last year too. 
anyway, it's been dry for a while. And so the moist soil production isn't as good as it could be. So we'll probably evaluate what comes up in this unit. And then if we have to, we'll nuke it probably with chemical and then go back and uh, drill um, Jap mill it into it mm -hmm. or something like that. Because this salt marsh aster just isn't productive. It doesn't really have any food value for ducks. It's good cover and hiding for hunters, so uh, we don't totally dislike it. Um, we've built a lot of blinds with it before. I knew what it was. We've used it um, to build a blind on um, that hunt with you, me, um, and Carl, and Ben, where uh, we shot some spoonies. Mm, right. Is that where you're area. burning? Is that spot where you're kind of burning now? Yeah, we burned almost that entire area. We burned over 1,200 acres there last Thursday. So nice. that whole area is pretty much black. Which is, Have you guys gotten any rain at all? Not really. It yeah. flurried a little bit yesterday, but I mean, then it well, was. We've had good rain. Degrees. We've had quite a bit. Um, ponds are starting to fill back up. I know the reservoirs are at, up back up to pool. Yeah, we don't so, know what rain is around here. Oh, so. man. We cannot, <laughs> we cannot handle another drought here out there, man. I know. Please, I know. Lord, no. Let it rain, please. Please, yeah. Please. So, year round, your job out there is. If not directly related to waterfowl habitat, you're in and around waterfowl habitat all the time. Yeah. One awesome part about my job right now is um, even though it's not duck season, there's still ducks around. Mm -hmm. And anywhere, like anywhere else, there's just not really ducks. But because of the area that we're in, they're everywhere and they're fully plumed the shovelers and blue wings and everything pintails are fully plumed out and that's just such a huge bonus right for this work is like you're out like burning today and like a flock of green wing teal flies over <laughs> that's really nice right yeah. like you look off in the distance and there's you know some mallards dumping into the creek and you're just like, yeah this is right. nice. <laughs> That's cool. And you've hunted, you've hunted that place so many times. Like we've talked about it before when you've hunted a place so many times, you're hanging it, hanging out in it. The ghost of hunts past linger everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can look over and you see this little point and you immediately start daydreaming about a limit amount you shot there. You look mm -hmm. over to the place, you start dating, you look Hawks Landing, you're like, oh, I remember that teal hunt. We burned them down over there. It's like all of yeah. these ghosts of these adventures <laughs> are everywhere. And it's really adds to my, I, when I'm in a place like that, that I have so much emotional connection to, um, which that place, gosh, my emotional connection to that place is like, might as well be my hometown original bedroom. I mean, it's like, <laughs> Uh, my my ghosts in that place you're at go back to like uh, when I was 18. It's just man, such a special special. Yeah, special and one hunt that I was specifically thinking of today, um, teal season and super slow teal season, and we had talked to the biologist out there, and he said 
I've seen a couple groups go down here mm. and you, me and Carl hunted there. And I think we had a few passes. I don't remember. We killed nine or 10, but yeah, there's like nothing. Oh, we, okay. We you shot our did. limit. I mm -hmm. wasn't sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, there's no other teal except for like right there. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. That was great. We, yeah. I mean, we had been such a rough year. Mm -hmm. And we got that tip and I didn't, I didn't like the, I was being stupid because we got in there. I was like, Oh man, I just did not like how it looked. We were even talking about going someplace else. Like, I think we need to stick with this information. And there they were. And we were shooting <laughs> doubles here, doubles there. Yeah. Cause we had to move farther for you to shoot your last one. We moved mm. farther in there, but yeah, that very, that was a very special time for sure. Yeah. And I've noticed since that time, like they just, it seems like, the green wings just like it right there in that spot. I don't know what's special about that one spot, but it seems to be a winner. Yeah. <laughs> that is certainly interesting. What What's your favorite part of that job? Um, I think my favorite like work activity is prescribed burning. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's just super fun. And it's like, there's like an element of danger. And then <laughs> there's also, um, just like scientifically, like how these grassland systems function. It's just a must have on the landscape. And it's almost like countercultural to how a lot of private landowners, uh, function and just how a lot of people view and fire culture is like, you know, fire's bad, you know, fire burns down forests and kills trees. And, and we're like, yeah, it kills trees. <laughs> we hate trees. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's kind of like probably my favorite work activity. And then just as far as like the job in general, um, just being a duck hunter, like, um, I want to be around water and wetlands and I want to create them. So like working for the people that I work with, like that's part of like what we do. I think probably that would be the highest satisfaction I can get out of a job is like would be creating a wetland and then managing it. So like the ducks use it and then people can harvest ducks. Mm -hmm. That's probably the highest satisfaction I can think of out of a job like this. And since I'm still new in the field, I haven't really created any wetlands, but hopefully that's, you know, in the works in the future. And there's definitely the work I've did, um, last summer definitely influenced, um, you know, where people hunted and how many ducks we have, which is pretty cool. I did a lot of work in one pool and, and, um, the ducks didn't really get there until this spring. Um, but now they're just using this area like crazy. And you had that blue wing teal hunt there where right. there's a lot of guys out and, um, nobody was really shooting anything, but you shot, I think you shot your limit of blue wings yeah, or maybe five or six or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that area has significantly more water because of the work that I did over the summer, just cause it was choked with cattails. It was a dry year and I was able to get into there and, and hopefully kill a lot of them. We'll see, but we've got equipment now that I can 
we should be able to maintain that area. So, yeah, I know you go back in there and you guys cut hunting holes and you guys, I was thinking about this the other day. So even when there's thick, thick cattails, you guys will go in and just open up holes for people to hunt in. And -hmm. which is awesome that you guys do that, but you seem to do it last second, like August. Um, Is there ever an idea to, do that before the cattails get in there, like kind of go in there maybe once in June and then check it at late July so that you're keeping more of that opening year round. Yeah. It's kind of like a balance, right? So the whole summer is a growing season. And so the vegetation is constantly growing. And like, as the summer progresses, we kind of have different, job responsibilities and specifically like early in the growing season, we target uh, thistles because they're really bad um, in the uplands. And so in the, they're invasive. So because it was just me working at this area, doing the field work last year, most of my time was spent just spraying early season. So it wasn't really until like later summer where I even had an opportunity to get back there. So just more, how how are you going to manage your time? Yeah. It's more of a time management thing. Like if we didn't have to do any of that, we would be in there all year. Right. Like you can do disturbances at any time of year and get a different effect. So, and it's also like if you wait till August to mow those holes, then specifically like holes for hunting, you're not going to have to go back and mow them again. Whereas Mm -hmm. if, you know, I mow them in June, I'm going to have to go back and mow them again. And we do want uh, like food to grow up. If there's an opportunity, you know, smart weed or burning grass. So, um, and that the plant composition can change as the year goes. So the timing of those mowings can be important. Um, so it's kind of like, it's a balance in the time management. As far as those specific areas, uh, back in that pool where you hunted, if they come back to cattails, we'll probably just spray them and keep Mm -hmm. them open and keep the cattails back. And if they come back to smart weed and moist soil, then we'll probably let it grow and then mow it again in August. So there's mm-hmm. open water showing. Right. So makes sense. Oh, oh, that's good stuff, man. Um, I remember you let me come to a ride around with you one day and you were just spraying frag mites, which I, that was so much fun to be able to be on that ground that I've been around for so long in that capacity where I'm, you know, on a, um, vehicle back in there and you're spraying and that, that was so much fun. I, I'd like to do that again this summer at some point. Yeah, totally. You should for sure. For sure. All right, let's jump to something else. So this is kind of the last thing that we're, we're going to finish with you naming a couple of hunts we've been on that are your favorites. But before that, um, I, I know you listen to some of the podcasts, but you don't get to all, all of them. I was talking about the last time I was there and we went on the snow goose hunt and I told the story about how you guys had heard all of the shooting going off in that private field 
right next to public and you guys went and watched and it was what eight guys shooting at birds from 80 yards. I mean, just sky busting like mad. Right. Correct me if I'm getting yeah. wrong on this and that they would have just, I don't know how many shots would rung, rang out how, you know, eight guys times however many they were and and a couple of geese would kind of float down at each pass and ended up with a good number of geese. But you noticed after that hunt that there was now the number of cripples on the marsh increased significantly from that hunch. And so what I was thinking about and what I was trying to work through in my mind and what I want to get your opinion on is we know the snow goose conservation season is specifically to reduce the population. That's why it's there. And so their actions was aiding in reducing the population of snow geese. But the result of what they were doing was wounded geese. Because I remember you said from the time of that hunt, the number of wounded geese that we're seeing has just raised through the roof on the marsh. So my question is this. Do you think that since it's a conservation season and we need snow geese Shot, we, you and I on that trip, we talked about the value of different birds. And this is a value of the bird question, right? Are, is what they did ethical because the ultimate goal is to lower the number, the populations, maybe by any means necessary, or is it unethical because that many wounded birds where you had said you were, um, when you had shot us at some snow, some of them had gangrene. So uh, leaving all those cripples. Suffering birds, birds with gangrene, what's the right decision? Are they ethical for doing it or unethical because the the wounded loss exceeds the value of the killing of those birds? What are your thoughts? Yeah. All right, let's dive into this. This is a tough question. Um I'm gonna start off with like how which we talked about, how do I value the life of a snow goose? Um, to me, I value a mallard duck more than I would a snow goose. Why? A snow goose's life. Because that's where it gets tough. <laughs> that's yeah, it's tough. Cause we like them better. <laughs> Cause yeah, well the thing is, I still like highly respect snow geese, and right. I think they're a really cool bird. I mean, there's 15 million of them. They figured out they live for 20 plus years, a lot of them, and they travel thousands of miles. And just how they function as a species, you know, large groups, loud, and and just also the elegance. The blues are so. So the different grays and speculum, like it's so complex. Like I really still respect him. Right. But I think because there's so many in my mind, I justify it's okay for me to shoot at them at 60. Right. Um, even though I know there's a less chance that I'm going to harvest this bird at 60. Whereas like a duck, I'm going to be way more, conservative there's only a few million mallards and if the mallards have a bad year this coming hatch like we might not even be able to hunt uh 
the same number of days mm-hmm. who might go to a restricted bag limit uh, for days in the future. And so I think to me in my head, that's how I justify it. Like if the mallet numbers go down, we're not going to be able to hunt as many days in the future. Mm-hmm. And currently there's a snow goose conservation order where like the government basically says we can do whatever we want basically, except like hunt at night right? for these birds, like unplug shotguns. Like we all know. And well, and can't you shoot? So that's how I after sun- it. sunset. Also, you can shoot 30 minutes after sunset as well. Yes. With snow you can't. So that's kind of how I justify it is like, it's almost like because the law allows it, I justify it in my mind that it's more okay. But as far as like ethically, so this group specifically, like flock would come in or, you know, come in close to the decoys. And I don't remember, there's eight to 10 guys and everybody has an extended tube. So let's say, you know, minimum of eight guys, they all have extended tubes. They probably have 10 shells and they're probably all plugging out. So let's say like 80 shells go into the air and it literally, it sounds like a machine gun and two or three birds fall. At that point, I think that's unethical in my mind. And why it's a little bit harder to describe why, because it's like dad and I have shot single snow geese that we know, we know this bird is probably 70, 75 yards. And we, I guess we calculate, you know, is it worth shooting at and we've shot it and sometimes we get them and sometimes we don't. So at that point, it's also, well, was that ethical? Because the distance may have been the same, but we're only wounding one bird instead of 20. When well, I'll guarantee more than 20 probably. I mean, if they're uh, probably yeah. way more than 20 per pass. I mean, if it's a whole like line of them, with that many shots, it's probably wounding more than 20 per shot session. Yeah. I would say. So I would say, like, if we're just going to paint a black and white picture, that that scenario specifically was unethical. Right. But I do personally allow myself to shoot much farther at snow geese than I do at ducks and be way more aggressive um, with snow geese. And I think... Like even you and I had a stock last year where I think we killed 42 mm-hmm. and like, I think we each took three shots Yeah, and like, there's no way that we recovered every single bird that yeah. got hit by a BB, you right. know, was that, was that unethical? <laughs> I don't know. I would say, I would say no, that wasn't unethical, but you know. That, you know, for one, it's just not black and white. Two, right. we started shooting at them at 15 yards, and we did attempt to keep our shots lower so the birds were closer after, you know, we shot, then we could start cleaning up 
the birds up. And I do think we recovered a significant majority of the birds that were hit. But I mean, we both saw birds that were across the marsh that I'm, you know, we just couldn't recover. They were 300 yards away and we just weren't going to be able to retrieve them. So was that unethical? Yeah. You know, I think that these are all fantastic conversations to have. And these are the kind of conversations I think I wish went on more in hunting circles. And I, I haven't been in thousands of hunting circles, but I can tell you the number of times these conversations come up is pretty close to zero. Um, and I, and I think it, I think it's important to, to really be thoughtful. It, to me, it comes down to pain and suffering. As waterfowl hunters, we all say, okay, we know that we're going to inflict some pain and suffering from what we're doing. We're going to. When we say wounded loss, we're not talking about a bird that flies 200 yards and is dead in five minutes. You've got to think about the birds with gangrene, right? The birds that are just slowly suffering. You can have a conversation at animal suffering versus human suffering. It's not the same thing because animals can't have no sense of self. So I can say, oh, my arm hurts. And I can consciously think about that pain in that way. Animals cannot consciously think that way. So they, their pain and suffering is, is not the same as human pain and suffering. But it is still pain and suffering. So we are willing to say we're going to waterfowl hunt this year. And I'm willing to inflict some pain and suffering on some birds. We all do. But I think the question is at what point is that pain and suffering so great that it's unacceptable. And I really think that's what it boils down to. When you and your dad do it, the pain and suffering chance is one bird. That group is doing it. Maybe it's 20 birds every time they pull up and shoot 80 shots. Maybe it's 100 birds. But it's enough for the managers of the marsh to go, oh, my gosh, there's wild, there's wounded birds everywhere now. And maybe that level of pain and suffering is the threshold that it just exceeds. But there's no, there's no, like, just because you and I say it doesn't mean that that's the truth. These are opinion statements. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think interesting to talk about. Yeah. And they are good to talk about. And I think you could say, like, it's unethical to not talk about it. Like, your group needs to talk about it and kind of decide where you're going to be at. Um, Another point is one thing I was thinking about today is like how cruel, like when a coyote catches a snow goose, that death's pretty cruel. So, and we are acknowledging that we are causing some pain and suffering. How is, you know, the relation, what's the relationship between, you know, that, the kind of, um, suffering that we're causing versus like a death, a natural death by a predator. Right. I was thinking about that today and would I rather be eaten or would I rather die from gangrene? You know, (laughs) 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 I don't know. (laughs) Well, the animal world's vicious. I mean, animals eat each other while they're still alive. It's a brutal, brutal place. But as humans, we certainly seek to minimize pain and suffering. 
I know when cows are killed, it's like a one shot to boom, they're dead. They're it's zero mm-hmm. pain and suffering basically. And so I knew that, that we do care about that because we do try to try to minimize it. And we just need, we need to take that thought process to the water fouling. We do, how can we, yeah. how can we produce as low of pain and suffering and wounded loss as possible and still do what we do ethically. Right. Right. Yeah. I guess that's probably at the bottom line yeah. is how can we reduce it? How can we harvest the most effectively and reduce the wound ratio? Yep. All right. Last thing let's one or two. I don't care if you one pops in your mind or two pops in your mind. I may add one. If, if, if I think of one, um, actually I will talk about, um, my favorite of, uh, I know what, I know what those are. Uh, I, I will talk about that, but, um, one or two of your favorite hunts you and I have been on. Yeah, sure. My favorite duck hunt that we've ever been on, um, not this past season, but the season before, um, it was you and I and my dad in those trees and mm-hmm. do you know what I'm yeah, talking about? I gotcha. Yep. Yeah. We shot 14 green and I think dad and I split on a hen, <laughs> which is silly, <laughs> but the ducks were just pouring in that day and, um, it was cloudy. just felt ducky. It wasn't sunny and it wasn't nasty, but it was, it was kind of cloudy. We had a good wind from our back and the ducks were coming in through these trees and we shot our limit and we just, we kept landing ducks and yeah, it was, and it was easy pickings too. They were coming right to where we were. I felt like, I think one reason I liked that hunt so much is I felt like my calling, our calling was really effective that day. Mm-hmm. Like they were coming straight to it and they were turning when you call. Yeah. And that's kind of like, it's really important to a duck hunter, at least somebody like us. It's like we can call all day and sometimes they just ducks don't care. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to be there. And that's not as pleasing in a way, like sure. fulfilling as a hunt. Like, but when, you know, there's ducks flying and you call and they turn and they come in and you give them a, a couple quacks and that finishes it for him. That's like, that's yeah. what you dream about. It is. So. Especially when they, when you hit the call and I, I call it breaking their, breaking their back or breaking the, I don't know, breaking their back to turn around. It's like they mm. immediately lock. You hit the call, mm-hmm. they're going away. They immediately set those wings and just circle. It's just, it feels like you just have them on that rope. And yeah, that is a yeah. satisfying feeling. It is. It is. Cause we're constantly trying to figure out like, what can we do better? You know, it's like, well, is it our hide? Is it the wind? Is it the weather? Is it our decoys? Is it the spinner? And it's like, when they're going away and you call, it's like, you know that that's what it was. Right. They weren't going to just turn around and yeah. come back for anything except that one thing. Yeah wonderful thing yeah that place yeah. Is, is now my, my my favorite place is change and that right now is my absolute number one favorite place to kill ducks yeah <laughs> i think i'm gonna change the name of that to the arkansas slough because jake says that that slough is very similar 
to a lot of stuff he's hunted in Arkansas, just the look of it and everything. Mm. So I've mm-hmm. called it the slough. I think I'm going to change it to the Arkansas slough. The name nice. Because Aiden and I have this thing. If we hunt on public and something isn't named, we name it. And oh, yeah. That way we just refer to it. And if we typically call it by its name, if it's pre-named, which, which I, the thing I love so much about is some of these places we hunt, I named it before the state named it. And that, that's, what I was like, that's my baby. I named that first. Yeah. <laughs> I won't call it what you named it. Cause I named it before the state did. <laughs> yeah. That in, uh, my second season hunting with you, um, we hunted this marsh and we have a, you have, you named it. We have a name for it for our group Pelican? that you gave it. And yeah. Yeah. And I didn't even know that that wasn't the name for like <laughs> a year, a long yeah. time. I just assumed that that was its name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I won't, if I'm talking to other people, like if someone gets inside the circle enough that, that we talk about that place, I will say, oh, I'm talking about this and I'll name the state name and I'll say, but we call it this. And then from there, I'm going to talk to him. That's just what I'm not. I'm not going to budge off the name of the place that that I hunted before the state named it. It's just too personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that place, that is my most favorite time period we had together. when we got on that string in there on on the season you're talking about, season three where we were putting down limits like six out of seven, I think five out of seven days in a row, we put limits down there. And uh, that run of hunts, because season one and two, FTH were so bad. My just worst two seasons of my entire life. And everyone on, <laughs> everyone on the channel is like, I, I would be on forums and just see some random guy goes, yeah, I like free on stuck any, but man, they sure can't kill any ducks. You know, it's like, <laughs> It started, it was get, starting to get to me. It was starting to get to me. Yeah. I was trying to be humble about it. It was starting to get to me because the perception was, yeah, it's a pretty cool channel, but they sure can't kill anything, you know? And that was bugging me. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And so it it's, gets you down. It's like, I, I promise I can kill ducks. <laughs> I know. Right. It's, it's an, it's an ego thing. And we, we all want to be seen as when duck hunting is important to our lives that it is to ours, we want to be seen as competent good duck hunters. Right. It's like, you meet someone like Jake, if he says, oh, you're a great duck hunter, you know, it's like, it means a lot, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Or, or Joel or, or, you know, guys that you just know, know how to do it. It's like, you don't want to be seen as someone that, you know, puts out pretty good content, but can't kill a duck. That's, <laughs> that's nothing feel good at all. <laughs> that, that streak was broke on the tornado hunt though. The tornado hunt where we were in a tent and there was a tornado and all my, my mom, my uncle, I was going, get out of there, get out of there, get out of there. Right. And we didn't leave the tent, little tiny tent. It was blowing over on top of us. Yeah. It was like smacking us in the face. Yeah. And, uh, we got up balls early. I mean, so early. Cause it was opening day, big duck season. And that was the day you caught that little rail in your hand and we petted it for a while. Oh, in the yeah. dark. And then you let it go. And man, um, that hunt broke the bad streak of hunts where we just slayed him at Hawk's Landing. And that was the my third hunt I was gonna mention. So I'm glad you brought that up. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And uh and then we went on a few weeks later and got onto that streak at Pelican. And like from then on, hunting's been great. But those those times where we were just getting it done. We were killing tons of mallards. It was like monkey off the back. It, it was just, yeah, that's it for me, for the two of us together. What, what was the other one? Yeah, another one? Yeah, 
uh, the Arkansas slew is, um, probably my top favorite. And then the second one that came to mind is when we shot three man of geese with, uh, you, me and Charlie on the right. river. Yeah. And I shot that band, mm-hmm. but we were just like laying out in white on the ice and the decoys were groups were just unbelievable right in our face. That was yeah. super cool. And then Hawks landing was my the third one I thought of, but I had forgotten about the tornado experience the night yeah. before. Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up. That ice goose on, I'm pretty sure that that one goose I killed was going to land on top of me. Cause I was in yeah. uh, that blind that was snow covered. If he wasn't going to land on my chest, it was going to be somewhere within a foot of me. He was 100%. that whole group was dropping down right on my face. I killed that guy probably at 12 yards right off of my gun. That was just, yeah. that decoy is, oh my gosh, was unbelievable. Yeah, that, that was insane. The last one I could think of was the one me and Fumbles were on um, a couple of years ago where the hunt strung out um, and we shot our limit. You know what I'm talking about? Not yet. Um, well, it's the same place you were shooting snows. Recently. Oh. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that mm, was such a fun yeah. hunt because we didn't finish up to like 11. So I like a hunt that you finish like 10 or 11 where it's strung out. Everything we killed just decoyed so well. And we shot so well. And the sun was perfect. The video turned out awesome. Everyone shot their limit. I think we even shot our pintails. You shot a, a taxa, taxidermy level widgeon. I mean, the dogs yeah. were great. It was just. One of those days where everything goes perfect. Everyone's in a good mood. Everyone's shooting well. The weather is beautiful and spectacular. That was a day. You're right. Yeah, I had not thought about that one, to, but that one's up there for sure. A couple things I remember about that is one of the comments in the video is like, you're educating ducks because Carl shot that one Drake out of that group of 25, that decoy. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're educating all these birds. <laughs> Whatever. Right. Uh, I, I find that those comments tend to come from, as far as I can tell, um, early 20s guys. Um, mm. And I don't know why that I don't, maybe that that's my perception of it. Yeah. Silly. Silliness. Well, I just had such a good, mentor and somebody that brought me up the right way. So maybe I would be like that if, if somebody else had taken me under their wing. <laughs> Teaching you all the wrong things. <laughs> like these, this idiot just flipped his boat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell, look, that's the last thing. Tell, tell that story. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll end it. We'll finish off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had not met Elliot. Or I didn't know who he was at all. I'd never heard of freelance duck hunting. And um, I was hunting with a kid from my cross-country team. And we had killed some ducks on opening morning. We had gotten there pretty early. And there's this rumor floating around, guys, we talked to you, that these guys had uh, flipped their boat and sunk their boat that morning. And I'd only heard about it, but... I just remember some guy saying, yeah, those idiots flipped their boat. <laughs> and that's 
Now, I didn't even know that it was Elliot and Carl <laughs> freelance duck hunting at the time. And <laughs> uh, we so you're making a name for yourself. Then two, it was only a couple weeks later we met. Yeah. <laughs> you met the idiots. I met the idiots. I'm not, I can't remember. Do you remember if I had put two to two and two together that day? I met you guys like, you guys flip your boat i think we talked about it on that hunt i think we did but i'm not positive i know it was early on that you had put it together uh, i don't know if it was that first day and by the way we got skunked on that first day but hunted till noon and had a grand time <laughs> but yeah and i forget that we got skunked that day because it's mm-hmm. like it was a great day it was fun a great day of hunting Cormorants put on a show for us. I got good video of the cormorants. My dad told an epic story about pooping his pants and falling down <laughs> on the deck. <Yeah. laughs> oh, and hitting his elbow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So my dad, quickly I'll tell the story. My dad was out Please. doing yard work and I uh, thought he had to fart and uh, end up being a little bit more <laughs> than a fart. And for some reason, I don't know. See, this is what I don't understand is why he would panic and start running. But he panicked yeah. <laughs> and started running to the bathroom, like sprinting. And he tried to come up the front porch steps, caught his foot on the top step, just wiped out face first on the deck, hit his elbow so bad that it was like huge and swollen for weeks afterwards. So there he is laying on the deck with poop in his pants, swelled up elbow. <laughs> <laughs> so then every time someone oh, asked gosh. him about the elbow he felt guilty he's like I'm, I'm not really telling the whole story but my, my mom thought it was so funny she started telling everyone the story about how it happened to his elbow <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't want to tell that story that day but you guilted him into it yeah I said listen either you're going to tell it on camera or I'm going to tell it on camera I got the camera yeah. and I got the editor and I got the channel so either A you tell it <laughs> Or B, I'll tell it, but one or another, it's going to get told. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was hilarious. Yeah, that was great. We did have one duck come in that day, and I drew up on it, and I didn't have a shell in my gun. And, you know, I remember asking, it was a wood duck, and I asked you, I said, um, we had to talk about the, or no, maybe it was, it was a different, no, it was a different one. A duck flew by, and I was just trying to feel you out, and I was like, would you have shot at that? And I was, cause it was a little farther than what I would have shot at. So I was already working on mm. you about shot selection on that first day. <laughs> Plant those seeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you got anything left? Anything else? I mean, say? I could talk to you for a long time, but I will yeah. say, I was thinking about this this season is like, um, my shot selection since we don't hunt as much has certainly, I've certainly extended my range. Yeah. Since we've quit hunting together every weekend. <laughs> yes, you have. Are you so, wanting me to comment on that or is there's an open side of the map? Are you wanting my <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Um What was your shooting what was your shot uh shooting percentage just last year? It was in the still in the um, mid fifties, right? Yeah, it was above 50% still. I well, the thing is I I'm not in order for me to really judge those um <laughs> I have to be there and see them. 
because there's a, I, I don't know how far I know that you and your dad and I were having big discrepancy about the range of those snow geese over top of us. And I suspect I was more right than you guys were about those, mm-hmm. the distance of those birds. Um, because I was thinking they were 60 ish and you guys were thinking they were 40 ish. And I don't think there's any way in hell those were 40 ish. So I I would have to see the shots for myself. I mean, if you're taking, if you're taking 60 yard (laughs) shots, I would certainly have issues about it. Um, because of what we talked about before, your, the chance of your wounded loss just goes up with that. If they're truly 40 to 45, even touching 50 and you're stoning them all. You know, Titus shoots a lot. Well, in the past, not anymore, since his style has really changed. In the past, I think that Titus and his brothers were shooting a lot of 50-yard shots. And those guys can flat kill those birds. They can. Absolutely. And if you read choke limits, they're listed up to 50, 55 yards. Uh, They are. I don't like a shot over 50. And I question the lethality of them. But they are listed at that full chokes at that at that distance so my i guess my questions would be is are you being patient enough to make sure that you're working them it's like what is it a byproduct of it is it a day where um you're just like wow we're gonna have to extend our limited a little bit here because it's just not working for whatever reason and then you're doing it and still killing a high rate or are you being too quick to shoot those shots and right. and what is your percentage looking like on those shots? What are the bird? Do the birds seem to be doing that little twitch a lot of the time? If you're shooting those shots and missing a lot of times, and you're seeing that little twitch, which means they're eating steel, then I would have an issue. I would have an issue with that. Um, so really, that's what it comes down to. It's just I tell that story over and over again about my dad hunting with these guys, and after two passes, these guys said, "Oh man," and they was teal hunting. These birds are just not going to finish today. And they shot their limit on all pass shots. They left, and my dad sat there in an hour and shot all his full limit of birds in the decoys. They just weren't being patient enough to get the kind. They they were too quick to say we should extend our range. So really, it's it's more it's more nuanced with with that um, with what you're doing. Really, I think. Sure. Yeah, I think. One reason my I've been willing to shoot farther is because I've hunted with new people. Like mm-hmm. when I started duck hunting, I got hunted with you. And right. Like, that was it. Right. And so all I knew was the way that we hunted, which is a great way to hunt. It's probably, it probably is more ethical than um, the way I hunt now, just because when I shoot farther, I'm more likely probably am to not retrieve a bird or put steel on a bird and not retrieve it. But, you know, I started hunting with Jake and he definitely shoots farther. I now have a pattern master in my gun. And so I'm aware that my gun supposedly is, has a full tight choke out to 50 or 60 yards, whatever it is, the code black duck. And so I know I have extended my range and on one hand, it's made me a better shot. You know, I look at those hunts when you first started videoing, Mm -hmm. you've got a string of videos where you were hunting with an improved cylinder. 
And mm-hmm. your patience and your shot shot selection on those hunts was a thing of beauty. And it brought about, I don't know if I can quite put this to words. When you have a clean, tight shot selection and you're getting to spectate those birds more and you're patient more, number one, I think that the, that the enjoyment of the hunt skyrockets, number one, but it's a thing of beauty. Number two, um, it's, yeah. it's almost in my mind, like an art artistic way of going about things when you're sure. so, I mean, there was shots that you passed up in those videos. I was like, damn, why are you passing those up? I mean, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that style to me, when I see you hunting that style, to me, that's just, that's it. That's the, that's the way to go. That's the style. Sure. But you can't hunt that style when you're with, when you're with four or five guys. So, right. I mean, maybe and I've hunted with larger groups. In the right. Recent. Past. More so. And maybe the answer is, and I mean, this is your hunting, not mine, but I, I was in awe with that string of videos and that style and how you were hunting. It was a thing. It was a masterful thing of beauty. And so maybe you need to search like, if I'm by myself or if I'm with small groups, do I get more in which way do I get more enjoyment from which way it feels better deep in my soul. And when I'm oh, 100% the way I hunted in those videos, you're talking about when I was by myself and I'm being way more patient for sure. I get 100% more satisfaction in those. So maybe in those settings, you yeah. kick in the improved cylinder and you've got those small group hunts and you're with the bigger groups. You kick in the, which full honesty, I've joked about that. Um, um, it, what is it called? You guys pattern master the pattern master Joe, Joel proved that that thing is, a, it's a joke. <laughs> he did hey, that. That thing he knocks did. him down. He, it may <laughs> kill them, but it's, it does not do what it says that it does. We absolutely 100% know it. Just watch the video. I mean, Joel proved it scientifically that that pattern yeah. master does not do what it says that it does. Now, does that mean it's not lethal? No, but it's, does that mean it's way more lethal than a factory full? It may not be. It may not be. So yeah. anyway, I wanted to put that in there because it's just, that's just, we know, we know Joel, Joel Strickland proved it in that video, but Anyway, right. but may, maybe that's the way you go back back about it. I mean, you, I don't know. It's it's up to you, and and really what, you know, how you want to go about your business. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's a good point. I think, um, you know, three years ago, I was prob I was more patient than I am now, and I probably I think I would say. I get more satisfaction out of being that patient and even like knowing it's like I could have killed that bird mm-hmm. at 20, 25 yards, but instead I waited and maybe not necessarily something better, but I still, I know I could have killed that bird and instead I shot this one, you know, right. it's really not a big deal. I think, um, you know, we, we talked about stages of hunting. I think it has become more important to me to shoot a limit than maybe it used to be. Right. Well, I will say that's true about me too. It's more important for me now than before I videoed by far. 
I've regressed mm. in the stages for sure. Mm. Um, now that everything's public and I'm, um, you know, especially after the first two years and there's nothing wrong with that. There's people say, um, when people are, are, it's like people have to be apologetic and I bet you felt it a little bit, a little bit like, well, yeah, yeah. It's a, why is it not okay to vehemently want to shoot limits? Who says that that's somehow wrong? That's the way it's portrayed. Yeah. Like it's somehow wrong to want to shoot. Right. Limits. Like if you, if you put an over importance emphasis on piles and limits, that that's somehow unethical, wrong, because you really should just be there to enjoy it. And if you shoot one duck or if you shoot a limit of ducks, you're just out there for the wrong reasons. You know, it's like you have to apologize. Like, yeah. no, listen, I want to kill lots of ducks. I'm not apologizing yeah, to anybody for that. And guess what? I might put a pile picture on Instagram. And you know what? That's okay, too. Yeah. Yeah, no, I do think that's okay. And I'd say, yeah, it's not unethical to think that. I just think it's when becoming, like, shooting a limit is more important than the people you're with. Right. And then, like, how you're doing it. Because I, right. when as I was scrolling through freelance hunt stats before this podcast, I got the, the title of one hunt is, it was in asterisks on both sides, so it'd stick out. And I don't remember what the title was, but essentially we had started out at Corn's Pond, and then you and I yes. went to, yeah. um, Southern public yeah. wetland and both of us at the end of the day regretted leaving yes. because you had a friend there. Yeah. Um, huge, huge and so, mistake. Yeah. And so that was a big mistake. And I think at that point and on that day is like we prioritized killing ducks more than the relationship. And that was huge because this was we a friend with. of mine who sure. I used to be extremely close with that I hunted, hadn't hunted with for a while. That has that, that that actually haunted me. The, I have brought, really? brought that up in my mind multiple times, like what an asshole move that was on my mm. part. I, I really, really, that's a perfect, perfect point. That is when you're about the, that the importance of, cause I was, I was searching my hundredth duck and I had like four ounces mm. to do it. And uh, mm. that is a perfect example of when it's wrong. I, we should have, we should have stayed there and I should have made sure that we did. Good point. Excellent point. Thanks. And that's haunted me too. I'm not going to lie. Like maybe not to that level, but it's like, I go back and it's like, I regret that. Yes, for sure. Very much. So then we can revise it and say, there's absolutely nothing wrong with putting a high value on shooting your limit and getting a pile as long as you are doing it ethically and you're not making decisions that you later regret around whatever it is because you're trying to do that. Yeah. The ducks can't become more important than the, than God or people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, I will say that, um, well, we'll just end it there. That, that was a great way. That was a great way to end it. 
So cool. cool. Um, anything else? I said that 20 minutes so. ago and we started talking more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. I really, really did. I, I certainly hope that if I can get to the point where I can, when I retire and I can travel a little bit more, we can hunt together more because I'll be a lot freer. Because I certainly would, that would be awesome. love to hunt more together than three or four times a year, which I don't know how many times when that was probably more than four, probably five or six. Yeah, it certainly it wasn't as many as I would would choose. Right. I don't know how many it was, but right. Yeah, maybe you should just retire uh, this summer. Hey, don't tempt me. <laughs> don't tempt please. Me. <laughs> don't tempt me. I've got to. I've got to make sure that when I retire, it is final. So I when I when I do it, I've got to make sure it's gonna stick. So ah, fingers crossed it can be done within the next few years. But we'll see. We gotta just trust in God and let him take me where he takes me, and you keep trusting in God and let him take you where he takes you. Because you got a lot of Amen things going that. on in your life. You're in a great direction. I'm proud of the man you are and the hunter you are, and it's been awesome to see you evolve and and you know, come into your own as a full grown adult. Cause that first video of you and you're in, you look like a little kid. <laughs> Man, I was green yeah. and young. Yeah. All right. well, I think <laughs> well, I'll say, I just want to say on air is like, man, I so appreciate your friendship and the mentorship and how you've poured into me as an individual and as a man. And there's just, you know, the Bible talks about, um, you know, brotherhood and loving your brother. And I just, I just, your friendship is really important to me and it's really impact, impacted the decisions that I've made in my life. So I really appreciate that. Well, I feel exactly, exactly the same way. And I absolutely know that I don't think that God micromanages this world. I don't think that every little thing that happens, God's going, this can happen, then this can happen. I think a lot of times he lets things happen and he works through them, but there are times in where he does, he does manage things. And I think that you and I meeting at that, you're the only person I've ever walked up to and said, Hey, you want to hunt together <laughs> ever? Right. And yeah. we were late for the hunt. I let my dad sleep in. That doesn't happen either. <laughs> and so I, yeah. I truly believe that uh, God knew that you were going to be a blessing to me and to fumbles in my family. And we were going to be a blessing to you. I think it was a, absolutely a God thing. So, you know, I appreciate we, my whole family, we appreciate you like crazy, man. So keep doing what you're doing. Keep staying close to God and keep growing and we'll keep hunting together. Yes, sir. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember you can get more content from the North American waterfowler over at Patreon, patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting. And we've been talking a lot about that app right now. It's, it's the freelance right now. It's what's the name of it? freelance hunt stats. <laughs> it's going to be the North American waterfowler app, but it's freelance hunt stats. Go download that and check it out. Huge changes going there until next time. This has been another episode of the North American waterfowler.